Well, okay. That was a shameless plug for a seminary that I graduated from uh, <laughs> and our church is a part of. Um, and I also do some affiliate work with them uh, at this point as well. Well, I'm glad you're here this morning. And uh, we're going to dig into a series where we have two more messages in it, and this is the second message about understanding the Bible and how the Bible is sort of laid out and put together. Uh, If you want to turn with me this morning, we're going to look for a moment at uh, Jeremiah 17 and then some core verses, uh, but we're going to, or 37 rather, Jeremiah 37. Uh, But here, before we do that, I want to just give a little bit of context and introduction. I feel like you need to stand one more time if you're able to do so. Just I want to make sure that you're not, if you're able to do so. Stand with me. Okay. All right. Uh, turn to your neighbor and, and say again, uh, welcome. <laughs> welcome, welcome. Peace of Christ be with you. I want to read two verses. As you're standing, I want to read two verses and then, uh, and then we'll continue on. Uh, so... Jeremiah 37, we'll get there, and then what I want to begin with two verses. So hear these verses, hear the word of the Lord. The first one is from 1 Corinthians 3.11. It says this, For no one can lay a foundation other than which, that which is already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Uh, would you read that aloud with me on the screen uh, from 1 Corinthians 3.11? If we can, can we put 1 Corinthians 3.11 on the screen? Great, great. For no one can lay any foundation other than what is being laid, which is Jesus Christ. And then one more verse let's read together uh, for our text today. Second Timothy uh, chapter 3, verse 16. Would you read with me? Every scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the person dedicated to God may be capable and equipped for every good work. And then I want you to hear this morning, uh, if you have your Bible and you want to turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 37, Jeremiah is in the Old Testament, so the first section, big section of the Bible, about two-thirds of your Bible, and it's one of the bigger prophets, has more chapters, major prophet because of the length of it after Isaiah. If you're flipping through, you get to Psalms, keep going, and you'll get to Isaiah, then Jeremiah, roughly speaking. Jeremiah 37 The story is there that the nation was about to be overtaken by Babylon, but the king of the nation didn't want to hear this. And Jeremiah was a prophet who was raised up and was telling the king that you need to surrender peacefully or you will be crushed and destroyed by Babylon. There were many other prophets who were false prophets claiming the word of the Lord and were speaking to the king saying, oh, no, no, everything will be fine, Zedekiah. Uh, Don't worry about it. Continue to stay in Jerusalem. Continue to hold up. Uh, You will come out victorious in the end. But Jeremiah was a true prophet who told Zedekiah, no, 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 these people are lying to you. They're telling you what you want to hear. Your ears will tingle, right? He's saying, no, no, I'm going to tell you the reality is you need to surrender or else bad things are going to happen. Eventually, the other people in Jerusalem got tired of hearing this and the other prophets and the king's advisors and said, you need to lock Jeremiah up because he's destroying the morale of the people that are holed up. He's destroying the morale because he's speaking these hard words that we don't want to hear. We want to hear victory. And Jeremiah keeps telling us we're going to be defeated and that we should peacefully surrender so it's as best defeat as possible. So lock him up. And and so the king locks him up. But King Zedekiah knew that Jeremiah 
was a prayer that Jeremiah was anointed by the Spirit of God. Jeremiah heard from the Lord. And so King Zedekiah, sort of on the sly, sneaks back to Jeremiah. And he sends for him and takes him out. And it says this in verse 16, for Jeremiah had, been, had come into the dungeon that is a vaulted cell, and Jeremiah stayed there many days. But now King Zedekiah sent and took him out. And in his palace, the king secretly asked him, because he knew Jeremiah, there was the ring of truth in Jeremiah. He said, is there any word from the Lord? Zedekiah was hoping Jeremiah would change the prophecy, by the way. We're told in the context that he would change his mind, that he'd say, oh, yes, yes, the Lord is going to deliver us from the Babylonians and all will be well and agree with the false prophets. So it's kind of strange that he's even asking it this way. But he said, is there any word from the Lord? And Jeremiah said, there is. Then he said, you will be given into the hand of the king of Babylon. Then he goes on and says, why are you treating me badly? And 38 fleshes out the rest of that story and the eventual takeover of Jerusalem and Zedekiah. His whole family is slain except for him. And they're slain in front of him. And the Babylonian king then gouges out his eyes. So the last picture that Zedekiah has is of Babylonians victorious not only over the kingdom, but over his own family. Is there any word from the Lord? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for what you're doing in this place. Continue to move in our midst. And as we discuss the three major sections of the Old Testament and we begin to get a layout of the land, as we discuss the prophets, I pray that our hearts would be stirred to have a passion for the scriptures and understand them in their context. And that as you spoke through the prophets of old, you have called people who follow you now after Jesus to also be open to prophetic speaking and prophetic living. And what does that mean from the Old Testament to the New Testament? I pray like Moses did and like the Apostle Paul did, that all of God's people would seek to speak forth with prophetic anointed voices into the world around us, including our city, our neighborhoods, and even our very lives and our children and our futures. I pray this in Jesus' name. And God, I can't do this in my own strength. I'm saint and sinner in process. I can't change anybody's minds. I'm not the most eloquent speaker. But Lord, I know that your word is powerful and active and it will do what goes well beyond the foolishness of preaching. So do your work, I pray in your name. Amen. Please be seated in the presence of God. Is there any word from the Lord? We've been talking about having a roadmap for understanding the Bible. And last Sunday, we introduced this idea that the Bible is a revelation of God speaking to people throughout time and in their cultures. And that fundamentalists and atheists tend to read the Bible the same way, a flat way, with ignoring context. And if you read it the same way as an atheist, or if you're an atheist reading it the same way as a fundamentalist, you're reading it wrong, <laughs> No one taught me that when I became a Christian, and so sometimes I encountered these strange arguments about, well, they'd pick some weird verse out of the Old Testament law, which doesn't apply and didn't even apply in most cases in the Old Testament the way it's read literally, and say, how can you believe that out of context? I used two illustrations last Sunday that I think are important. One is that if I took 1,000 or 10,000 emails of yours throughout the course of your life up to this point, 
And I grabbed words and sentences here and there, and I pieced them back together. I could probably make you say anything. Well, you said in email number 10,373, you know, that you hate dogs for all eternity. Therefore, you are a bad person, you know. I could piece together and make all this, and people will do that when they do not understand how Scripture is put together and how God has inspired it and how the pieces interplay with one another. And it drives me absolutely insane as someone who is a, became a Christian and now working in the church to sometimes see some of the arguments out there on the internets. Remember that uh, you don't have to respond to every fight you're invited to online or otherwise. Uh, and they see some of this stuff, and it just drives me batty because it's just ripping it out of context. Like, if you did that to anybody else in any other ancient book or even your own emails or text, uh, you would not be okay with that kind of law argument or reasoning. And so understanding how the Bible is put together is important. It is a roadmap. It is a travel guide. It is a revelation of relationship. It is not to be treated as a magic book or a formula. If I just say the right verses in the right order, everything will be fine. If I just name it, claim it, blab it, grab it, whatever, uh, if I'm facing the right direction, if I'm bound, it is about relationship. It is revealing a God who comes into his creation and continues to desire to have that creation flourish and yet gave that creation so much freedom even to go against his own will and yet he engages again and again and again. And he's doing that from the Old Testament all the way to the New Testament. We discussed last week as well that because the Bible's not flat, we believe that the peak or the, the center, the top of the Bible is Jesus, that he is the living word. In fact, the Bible itself tells us to read it that way. So when someone like a fundamentalist or a pop atheist is reading it flatly, you say, well, the Bible itself gives us instructions on how to read it. Jesus in Luke 24, after his resurrection and before he ascends into heaven, tells the disciples that all of the law, the prophets, and the writings were pointing to him, which was shorthand of saying all of what we now call Old Testament, Old Covenant, or Hebrew Bible was pointing to him. So that tells us we read it differently. We read, of course, when Paul talks about to the Colossians that in Christ, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell bodily. This is a super important verse to memorize and understand. We read the Bible through Jesus. Jesus was the point of the Bible, is what it's pointing to. This is the word, and he is the living word. Sometimes I say he's the capital W, or he's the capital W-O-R-D word. And this can just be the word, or the capital W word, or however, to make that distinction in your mind. We don't worship the book. Muhammad talks about Christians being people of the book, but he fundamentally misunderstood because he was around Christians that had kind of gone off the rails a little bit. We're not people of the book. We're the people of Jesus because the book tells us that Jesus is the point. He is the center. He is the revelation of God. In fact, I love how uh, one of the pastors in the States, Andy Stanley, talks about when he's teaching and preaching, he obviously uses scripture as we do and all Christian churches do, but he doesn't necessarily always appeal to the Bible says X, Y, and Z, therefore you should do X, Y, and Z. Because today, many people have no clue about how the Bible is put together and they won't even begin, they don't even buy that claim. They don't see the authority of scripture like someone who has experienced Jesus has. And so we begin by our appeal to Jesus, the living Christ, the work of the Spirit, the work of the Spirit in creation, the work of the Spirit in community, of the gathering of the church, the work of the Spirit in God's love, that there's a resurrected Christ 
who by the Holy Spirit is present right now in this room, in creation, working, drawing, and wooing. And when you have an encounter with Jesus through community, through creation, through dreams, visions, however it comes to you, through even scripture, you can have an encounter with the risen Christ. That encountering the risen Christ by the Spirit is an argument that you, now it's no longer between me and getting out, whether we read it like the fundamentalists or the atheists, it's now what have you encountered with Jesus? And then you come to the word with a whole new set of eyes and it's very different and so today we want to dig into this a little more three sections if you're following along in your outline in the newsletter the the jewish way of dividing the bible is basically the torah which we talked about last sunday the writings and the prophets or to put it another way the christian order would be the torah the prophets or yeah yeah no the torah writing in the prophets would be sort of the christian order the jewish order would put the writings at the last of that list of three Before you leave today, I have a handy-dandy bookmark because I like sometimes to give out stuff. Isn't it great to get free stuff in church? I think it is. Uh, And this is an outline of the Old Testament and New Testament using what most of us have learned if you've been raised in the church of the Old Testament, which breaks it into five sections. But I'm going to stick with sort of the Jewish ordering of the books in terms of three sections. Um, But again, we'll put the prophets at the end. And Christians put the prophets at the end in our Bible Because we see the prophets pointing to the coming Messiah. Whereas within Judaism, the sense of the Torah would be the height of the Bible of the Old Testament. And then the prophets are explicating or trying to apply it to new contexts. And the writings, of course, are lower authority about worship and wisdom sayings and so on. And so that sense of hierarchy. But for Christians, we would see in the Old Testament the sense of the prophets actually uh, having... I wouldn't say a higher place than Torah, but that the prophets are telling us that they're pointing forward more to Jesus more clearly than even we see in parts of the, the, the first books, the Torah. So today we want to talk a little bit more about the prophets. Now last Sunday we read about the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, and uh, what did I forget, Joshua? Uh, and so, or no, not Joshua's not in there, he moves, he moves later in prophets, but the first five books... And so in the old, that first five books, the law is given, the story, the founding stories of Israel is, are given. And I didn't really give you a lesson from Torah, but what would be one way to apply this? And I want to give you just one quick example, and then we'll unpack the prophets, if you're willing to do that. Are, are you willing? Yes? You're still here, so I will assume that is the case. One lesson from the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, or the law, as it's called, um, that it's constructed in such a way that the writers and God inspired Moses and other who, who did editing later in those first books, the way it's constructed was also not simply to give us the history and to give us the stories, but it was constructed to remind the people of Israel to pass their heritage on from one generation to the next. And you still see this today within uh, uh, Jews who are practicing Judaism, that it's, it's designed, again, to push back against the dominant cultures It's believed that its finalized form was probably done in times of exile. And so those books were constructed, and there's breaks in there that tell us this, that indicate that the point of that was to remind us that we must teach one another from generation to generation that the kingdoms of this world want to have ultimate claim on us. The government of Canada, the United States, the United Nations, the whatever nation, President Xi in China, want to always have ultimate claims on us. That the civil government, the political situation is the highest, most powerful, most dominating royal totalism is one way to say it. This totality of everything comes into the royal person of whatever government wants to make that claim. 
But the Old Testament law is constructed to say, remind your children, even when Israel, in ancient Israel, didn't have a land and were under the dominion of other empires, whether it was the Babylonians or the Egyptians uh, or, or whoever came along, the Romans later, remind them that there's another kingdom afoot. And that when the royal governments make these totalizing claims on truth and power, that it is a lie. And so the prophets build on this theme too. So I want to give you this story from Torah because it goes straight into the work of the prophets. And so this idea that when we worship and when we remember what God has done and we pass on the stories of God to the next generation, it is so you are not so easily assimilated into the claims of the political powers of the world. And the church in the United States, I can speak about that more, and somewhat in Canada, sometimes has been co-opted, thinking that the politics of the world are the only power that matters. But Torah and the prophets remind us there is another game afoot. And in fact, if you cultivate an imagination of a different kind of world based on the scriptures, what we find in the Bible, it will give you pushback against being sucked into this as if it's the only thing that is that matters. So worship and remembrance tells us, do not be assimilated into the dominant culture that rejects God, but through story and time and play and worship and delight, you will learn there's another power. And so in Exodus, one of the books of the law, or Torah, Exodus chapter 12, verse 26 and 27, it says this, and when your children say to you, what do you mean by this this service, this celebration, this Passover worship gathering they were doing. He said, when they say, what do we mean by this service? Or we might say in a Christian context, why do we gather on Sunday, the resurrection day? Why? You shall say it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And then the people bowed their heads in worship. This is repeated again in Exodus 13. Shortly after, it says, and you shall tell your son, and we would include your daughters on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. Now it's personalizing. It is what the Lord did for me when I came out of the bondage of Egypt, and it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and a memorial between your eyes. This idea of they did a literal binding of a, of a leather uh, a, a leather item to indicate the law. I said, and it will be assigned you on your hand and a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord brought you up out of Egypt and you shall keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. And so the five books of Moses later put to, you know, edited a little bit later from the, the, the teachings of Moses. Again, in Deuteronomy, this is brought up again. Verse 20 And chapter 6 says this, When your son asks you in the time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? You shall say to your son, When we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, Pharaoh in Egypt was a totalizing power, very much like most of our governments today that want to crush and destroy sort of middle-level civil institutions. We we said Pharaoh was a totalizing power. He claimed to be the king and the god of all of Egypt. And he says, and they were enslaved, and yet they were delivered with a mighty hand of God. He says, when we were slaves under the totalizing powers of the political systems of the world, and the Lord brought us out with a mighty hand. These stories tell us in Torah that we're to recruit each generation into a distinctive lore, history, story of wonder, and a discipline of gratitude that issues in obedience to the call of God. 
In the ancient world, as the Jews were dispossessed and exiled, the Torah, the law, was a contradiction to the stories of the dominant culture. And today we celebrate a story of the dominant culture. And my Mennonite's going to show a little bit today. I apologize for those of you that might freak out, but just breathe deeply. Look at your neighbor and say, it's going to be okay. The dominant story of our culture is that the bloodshed of world wars was the ultimate claim of justice and victory. And yet, I ask, had Christians on every side of World War I and World War II rose up against injustice, against the brokenness, and if they understood that their political powers were not the ultimate power, but that Jesus' kingdom is, would the world look different? I love the fact there's a prime minister in Ethiopia I'm going to murder this a little bit, who now is in power after years of fighting between different groups, some that are related and breakaway country of Eritrea, and he is a follower of Jesus, and he, he's not perfect, he's a sinful man like all of us, but he's trying to live it out in that recognizing that he is not the ultimate power, there's a higher power above him, and it is the power of the gospel of the kingdom, and he's trying to live it out in politics, and it's looking very different than the fighting and the, and the murders back and forth. So Torah tells us that even when we see these ultimate powers of military might and economic might, that indeed there is another thing that we need to understand, another power at work. And so we resist assimilation. We are in the world, but we are not of the world, as the New Testament says. The stories of the Bible need to be known. You need to know the scriptures We're going to give you a a thing towards the end of December that has a daily reading guide to take you through the Bible. And in Advent, we have a devotional that we will have available for you as well. This gives you pushback against the totalizing claims of the powers of the kingdoms of the world. And we are to be in the kingdoms. We're to seek the flourishing and the welfare. But at the same time, never forget that God is at work and his kingdom comes over all. And as it says in the New Testament, at one day when Jesus comes again, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess, every power on the earth, under the earth, and above the earth will worship and bow at Jesus, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and who wins not through violence and power over, but by his own shed blood, he shows that there's a deeper and most deep, the deepest power at work in the world is God's outrageous love. But we are tempted again and again to be sucked into the royal totalism. I just voted in Florida. I'm a United States citizen. And I like watching politics. I have to be careful that it doesn't become consuming for me. But I always remember this. At the end of the day, those ballots, those borders, those boundaries, those bombs do not have the final say, but the king of kings does, and he is at work. Well, let's keep going here. We'll get to the prophets. Let me breathe. Take a sip of coffee and look at all of you beautiful people. The prophets, and this is a real broad-based overview Originally, they were eight books you can see on the screen here, and they're split out. There's eight symmetrical books, eight former prophets and eight latter prophets in the way the Hebrew Bible has them. And now some of the scrolls are double scrolls, so that's where we go from Chronicles to having First and Second Chronicles and First and Second Samuel. They're just longer scrolls. But I want to talk a little bit about what is this prophetic part of the Old Testament. It flows out of 
the, the Torah and applying the Torah. And for Jews, they would have lesser authority than the Torah, but for Christians, we see the prophets as speaking and revealing more about where God is heading with the world. And so prophetic, when we hear the word prophetic, we often think of prediction. And that's partly true. We see foreshadowing of this, both of Jesus and even here where Jeremiah is, for, is telling for Zedekiah, this is what's going to happen if you don't change your way. There is, a, there is a foretelling. But there is also an aspect of prophet where there means engaging in justice and truth. When we use the word prophetic about the books of the Bible, we're not talking just about individual prophets, but about understanding history and understanding reality in a different way. The Old Testament, there's a lot of tension between the role of the governmental power or the king, what becomes the king. And there's the role of the prophets then, where their role really goes way up as the kingdoms are created in Israel. And the prophets often speak truth to power in their role, telling forth God's desire. And then there's the role of the priest, the organized religious piece. And the prophets also speak, and sometimes the priests are too aligned with the kings or the power over like we see in the churches often in the Western culture has been. And then the prophets often speak truth to the priests as well. And so the prophets had this role that involved denunciation and and also showing imaginative hope for the future. Denunciation of wrongs and brokenness and also here's what can happen if you follow faithfully the love of God and the covenant of God. And so they speak forth. The prophetic speech, even today, you will hear people speak of this, that there's a time of denunciation and Denunciation isn't simply about protest, as it were, but it's about calling out brokenness and then also providing a forward movement in God. I'm going to give you one quick quote here. Are you still with me? Say amen. This is simple stuff, but I I don't want to bore you to tears either, but I think it's important to get a picture. Torah, prophets, and the writings. Archbishop Romero uh, was a guardian of reality and John Sabrino, in his book, No Salvation Outside the Poor, talks about these prophetic essays, and he was involved in the struggles for the poor people in Latin America. And I don't agree with everything, but some of this is good. His, his sermons, John Sabrino says, attempted to be the voice of people who had no voice, the voice of the voiceless. And so they were doubtless bothersome to those who have too much voice. Giving word means struggling against the concealment of reality, which is another way of describing prophetic denunciation when realities are being covered up by the powers that be in the world. And he says this, he says, prophetic denunciation is mostly unknown in today's church, having been replaced in the best cases by ethical judgments on neoliberalism, political forms, wars, and so forth. And he says, ethical judgment is good, this is bad, this is good, We shouldn't be seeing this in our government, but this is great. But he says, ethics is not the same as prophecy. Social doctrine of how the Christian applies in our modern-day life is not the same as prophetic denunciation, and it's not sufficient because words that only express principles are easily co-opted. And just hear this. This is a meaty quote. I get it, but keep, keep with me just for a second. Hang with me, dear beloved. Denunciation is not the same as protest. He says, there's nothing wrong with protest, although some truth, there's a proposal behind every protest. He said, just as there's nothing wrong with much that is understandable about venting, and as everyone knows who has experienced lasting and helpless suffering. But denunciation means bringing to light the evils of reality, its victims and its perpetrators. Prophetic denunciation has ultimacy because it is done in God's name, and as denunciation, it is compassionate 
because it is done against perpetrators, but in defense of the poor. He goes on and says, this is why this archbishop, who was a martyr, by the way, gave voice to the poor and his word was true. He used it to defend the poor since his history is clearly shown the truth is in favor of the poor. He said, in the midst of impunity, corruption, and falsehood, sometimes the only thing people have in their favor is when the church takes up its prophetic voice. In the Hebrew Bible, the prophets speak to power. They speak for those on the margin. They speak for those who are being oppressed. And they speak truth to power even at the risk of their own lives and imprisonment. Concentration of power in governments is condemned again and again and again by the Hebrew prophets. The power was never that humans cannot carry too much power. And so today in our world, as we look at our governments, we need to ask What do we learn from the prophets? What do they tell us? So let's break out the prophets and how do they flow in the Jewish canon. Look at your outline and we'll just move forward here and then I want to end with a few last points. The former prophets in the Jewish canon, the four books are Joshua, Judges, Samuel, which was a twin scroll, 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings. So those are the the former prophets, uh, what are called the former prophets. And in them, there's interpretive commentary going on with what's going on in Israel at that time, both before the establishment of the kingship and then when the kings were established in Israel. To understand the former prophets, you can look at Deuteronomy 30, verses 15 through 20, that they're the conviction that the covenant traditions of the book and the blessings that follow obedience and the curses that follow disobedience. And so those first books in the former prophets talk about this. And Deuteronomy says this, Look, I've set before you life and prosperity on one hand and death and disaster on the other. What I'm commanding you today is to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and obey his commandments, his statutes, his ordinances, and you will live and become numerous, and the Lord will bless you in the land which you are about to possess. Deuteronomy 30, verse 17, again, this former prophets are all kind of summed up in this. However, if you turn aside and do not obey, you are lured to worship and serve other gods. I declare to you this very day, you will certainly die. You will not extend your time in the land you're crossing to possess. Today I invoke heaven and earth as witness against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse before you. Therefore, choose life so that you and your descendants may live, and I will call on you to love the Lord your God and obey him and be loyal to him. For he gives you life and enables you to live continually in the land the Lord had promised to give to your ancestors. So there's this sense of what God is doing in ancient Israel in that part of the the former prophets. And it's really about that morality of making those choices and what happens when they're made and when they're not made. The ending point is the destruction of Jerusalem in B.C. 587. And so we need to read those with that in mind. Those are the former prophets. The next section is the latter prophets, called the latter prophets, which include Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Twelve. You have this all in your outline, so don't worry about scratching this all down if you're trying to get it all in today. And the Book of the Twelve, which is a total of eight books uh, in the Old Testament. And those twelve are Hosea, Amos, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, and then Joel, Jonah, and Obadiah are all considered part of the Book of the Twelve. And so those are what are called the later prophets. And these books have different themes or trajectories depending on what's going on. Isaiah talks about the temple and the monarchy tradition of Jerusalem. Jeremiah focuses on the Torah again and Deuteronomy. Ezekiel focuses on holiness and the priest's power. Remember the prophet, priest, and king traditions in Israel. 
And these prophetic books are there to talk about how to interpret what's going on with the people. How do we understand law? What's going on in this context now? These prophets have been shaped and edited and talks about this idea that the judgment of exile is God's judgment. And God promises to also do a new thing in the prophets as well. I'm almost done. Hang on there. The prophets tell us again that Yahweh, the revealed name of the Lord, God works in the past. He works in the present. He works in the future. And again, he's trying to give us a counter world to counter denial and despair. He wants to give us a new way of thinking. And indeed, the prophets begin to tell the ancient people of Israel that God is going to do something new, that a new thing is coming, that there will be a new Jerusalem, a new law, a new covenant, a new temple, and all things are new. In fact, our theme verse this year comes out of the prophets, and it says, Do not call to mind the former things or ponder the things of the past. Behold, I will do something new. Now it will spring forth. Will you not be aware of it? I will even make a roadway in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. These are prophetic words and he's pointing to the coming of Jesus and so the power of understanding how the prophets play out is so important today it is popular among some liberal Christians to reach back and grab the prophets and use them for their political action and even conservative Christians I should say as well but understand that the prophets do call us to act and our, our, our faith should make a difference in our politics here, but there's a bigger politic going on of what Jesus will do in the coming of Jesus. And so when you read the prophets, be careful lest you try to domesticate them because they will also challenge our views of power in our generation. There's a reason why communists like to crush And conservatives like to co-op religious messages from the Bible because the prophets and the writings of the prophets and of Jesus in the New Testament tell us that the kingdoms of this world are not ultimate and we should not live as if they are ultimate. We honor them, we respect them, we live at peace as much as possible with them, but we also understand they do not have ultimate claim and authority. God, Yahweh, Jesus Christ has the ultimate claim to all authority and dominion and power. Conservatives want to co-opt them. Communists want to crush them because they want to neutralize the claims. Christians do not be sucked into either. We serve joyfully. We serve faithfully. We serve loyally. But at the end of the day, we speak to government and say, you are not the ultimate power in the universe. There is another one who is coming who is. And when you are on the oppressed side and crushed side, The prophetic word of the Lord comes to us and says to us, this is not all there is, beloved son, beloved daughter. This is not all there is. And God does something by the Holy Spirit through prophetic words in the New Testament that encourage people, even if all their circumstances seem like it's all going up in flames, all going to hell. The Holy Spirit comes And uses those words sometimes directly from the Lord into your spirit, sometimes from another brother or sister to encourage you and say, this is not all there is. And your story is not over until the King of Kings comes again. And people in persecution are more open to prophetic words than often Western Christians are. Because they experience the vice of the kingdoms of the world, not trying to co-opt them, but crush them. There's a reason why the gifts of the Spirit and people become Christians in places where you'd think, 
How on earth is that even possible? It's because there is a God and a resurrected Jesus who is working by the Spirit, who desires flourishing for all and justice and truth for all, rooted in who he is, not the kingdoms of this world. And the kingdoms of this world are called to account one day. As Christians, we choose to live leaning into that future. Let me read to you again from Isaiah 43 as we close, and then the so what's. Isaiah 43 speaks about what God is going to do. And it says, This is what the Lord says, the one who made a road through the sea, recalling the ancient story of Israel and the prophets, reaching back to Torah, and a pathway through the surging waters. And remember, in ancient Israel, the sea represented both the deliverance from the slavery of the totalizing power of the king of Egypt, who was the God and king, (laughs) and the Lord laughs, brought him through the waters of the Red Sea. But it also speaks to Genesis when God creates and the ancient Near Eastern stories of the waters of chaos and the war between all of the gods where the God of Israel, in contrast to all the other gods that were unknown back in the day, he creates out of the very power of his word, not through violence, not through terror, not through a destroying other gods, but the Genesis narrative says, unlike Timad and unlike the Agapic of Gilgamesh, the God who is the true God speaks simply by his word, and he, does, he calms the chaos of the raging cosmic waters, and he speaks, let there be land, let there be light, and there was light. He says, the God, prophets reaching back, Isaiah 43, the God who made a road through the sea, a pathway through surging waters, and then again to the Exodus story, the one who led chariots and horsemen to destruction together with a mighty army, they fell down never to rise again. They were extinguished and put out like a burning wick. Not by Israel's violence, but by the work of the Lord. It says, don't remember these earlier events. Don't recall the former events. Look, I'm about to do something new. Now it happens. Do you not perceive it? Some of you are here this morning, and in your own lives and in your families, there is desperation. Some of you are celebrating good things. Thank the Lord. But for those of you that may be struggling with something, hear the word of the Lord for you. The Spirit re-inspires it. As we read in 2 Timothy 3.16, And he wants to make a road, a way forward. Pilgrim Church, we have seen days of decline, but we've also seen new shoots of life. I want you to hear this morning that God has a a plan and a path for this body through a future to make a difference in the lives of those around us and in our lives as well. Look, I'm about to do something new, and now it begins to happen. Do you not perceive it? Yes, I will make a road in the desert and paths in the wilderness, and we might add to Isaiah again. The wild animals of the desert will honor me, the jackals, ostriches, because I put water in the desert and streams in the wilderness. He can calm the raging storm and bring new order out of the seas of chaos, and he can bring water to what it's supposed to do to be a life-giving source on the other hand and to quench the thirst of my people the people who I formed for myself, so they might praise me. All right. Stand with me this morning, and I'm just going to give you the so what as our worship team comes up, and how to, what do we walk away with today? From last Sunday, the basic message was first five books of the Old Testament, and the Bible is not flat, and we don't read the Old Testament the same way because Jesus has come. It was God's word, but it's not God's word to us in the same way anymore because we read it through Jesus. We don't jump over Jesus. Today, the takeaway from the prophets, the second major section of three 
ways of breaking up the Old Testament is that God speaks through denunciation and hope to overthrow the claims, the totalizing claims of the kingdoms of the world, the, the, the absolute claims that every government and every human institution wants to make when it goes off the rails and is not submitted to the Lordship of Christ. And that we have to understand that we bless, we are in the world, but we're not of the world, but there is power here to remind ourselves that he is at work and he's always been at work. And one ex- crazy example I could give you of that, just super simple, is here we are, 2,000 years later, Skeptics, curious, fully devoted followers. Some of us are followers and skeptics all at once. (laughs) Still wrestling with this. The church should not have survived the Roman Empire. It transformed the empire and it outlasted the empire. The greatest empire on earth at the time. Landmass. There's never been an empire like it. And here we are in this humble, orange, baby-poo-colored pews declaring that Jesus is Lord. Caesar is not. Sorry, that was inappropriate. Please forgive me. All of it except for the baby-poo part was okay. (laughs) And we're joined by millions upon millions of brothers and sisters around the world because Jesus is alive by the power of the Spirit, and he will come again literally and visibly one day. So what I want you to take out, remember this. The New Testament tells us that the prophetic spirit is now available to all people. Moses desired it, and Jesus said it would happen, and in Acts, and every way forward, God fills people with his spirit and gives us the ability to speak prophetically. In your home church, you'll read some of those passages if you have home church this week. The second thing I want you to take out this morning is that God is still speaking prophetic words to bring denunciation and new life and hope. And that as a church, we stand and we work for good in our world and we align where we can, but we also need to be willing to stand up when we need to. And that standing up isn't always about carrying placards and yelling at people. It shouldn't be that mostly at all. It's about engaging in real relationship, one-on-one, in twos and threes. That's how the kingdom of God rises, like a mustard plant, like the mustard seed. It's like, like this weedy plant. It is at this level that the foment of the kingdom continues, or as one uh, author put it, the patient, slow ferment of the kingdom. But it will change lives. The third takeaway this morning is prophetic speech always challenges the false comforts in our lives. It confronts us when we're making secondary things primary. I'm an annoying pastor because I operate a little bit in the prophetic gift. And the problem with that for the congregation is I afflict the comfortable and I comfort the afflicted. (laughs) Hopefully it's not everybody at once is annoyed with me, so I try to keep that rotating by the grace of God. But... uh, It's calling us up into higher things in the kingdom. We are to denounce what destroys love and what hides God's cross. We are to stand against greed, excessive accumulation, unwillingness to serve, and only to be served. This consumeristic mindset in the church, the prophetic voice says, we must not become consumers. And finally, I would say this. 
The prophetic voice is like John the Baptist, as Jesus, we read last week, he cries in the wilderness, said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world as Jesus is approaching. The prophetic voice in the New Testament sense always calls us to center back on Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who is slain from the foundation of the world. Behold the Lamb who has purchased for himself by his own shedding of his own blood, people from every tribe, every nation, and every tongue, everybody. Behold the Lamb of God. Jesus Christ is worthy of your full devotion. The prophetic voice says again and again, come to Jesus. He will change your life. He will fill you. He will get you rooted and centered in love like nothing else can. And then you can live fully and flourish in this world. And the prophetic voice says one other thing, follow Jesus. But it also says, he is coming again. He is coming again. This is not all there is. We work for the best in the world now in light of the fact that the ultimate claim is the one who created it and loves it deeper than any government and any individual could ever love it. In Jesus, all things are held together. In Jesus, this world is sustained. He loves it with a ferocious, white-hot love. He loves you that way. Let's pray. Lord, as we've been exploring the outline of the Bible, this is a sacred moment. And Father, I pray that in this room, this morning, this time, someone would be touched by your love and your word. That the ancient, deeper and older magic, as C.S. Lewis puts it, that that it it is alive and it is at work in this house and in our neighborhoods and in our families. And Lord, I pray that every person in this church would find their prophetic voice. They would understand that God has gifted them and you desire to speak through them. For the person that needs hope this morning, breathe it, that there is a way in the wilderness that God will make a way where there seems to be no way by the reasoning and thinking of the world. And put cracks in the ultimate claims of the kingdoms of this world and may your church Continue to do that with its uneasy walking with the empires as they come and go. May we live into that unease. Do your work in us, in Jesus' name, amen.